Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with Megan Goldberg, Assistant Professor of American Politics at Cornell College in Mount Vernon. Hi, Megan. Hi, Ben. Jonathan Hasid with us as well from Iowa State University, where he's Associate Professor of Political Science. Hi, Jonathan. Great to be back, Ben. And we always invite our listeners to join us for Politics Wednesday, one 780 9100 Plenty to talk about, as usual. We'll talk about the special counsel uh, that was appointed, Jack Smith. He's already at work. I believe he's in the Netherlands uh, working there at The Hague, but already uh, tuned in uh, to his new work as special counsel. Uh, we'll uh, ask um, Jonathan and Megan uh, what this means for the investigations of former President Trump. Also later in the hour, Iowa's Libertarian Party had a good showing on our midterm election night. What that means for them, uh, the tumult at Twitter under Elon Musk, political implications of that. We'll talk about Nancy Pelosi's uh, legacy and uh, perhaps uh, finish up with uh, the their thoughts, our analysts' thoughts on the lame duck session of Congress and the uh, future divided Congress. But first, I'd like to ask uh, about gun violence and the politics surrounding it. Uh, we have, of course, yesterday's attack at the Walmart in Virginia, um, the weekend shooting at a club in Colorado that left a number of people dead. Uh, such tragedies here in the U.S. Uh, and, of course, far and away, we are uh, lead the world in, in gun violence and, and gun deaths. Also one of the most contentious political issues uh, in this country, the Gun Violence Archive has counted at least 606 mass shootings so far this year through mid-November. Now, let's remember back in June, uh, President Biden signed into law the first major federal gun safety legislation that had been passed in decades. Here in Iowa, developments also on gun rights. Voters uh, here in Iowa chose by a wide margin to amend the state's constitution to add extra gun rights protections, as well as putting tighter legal restrictions, uh, that strict scrutiny wording on any efforts to pass a gun control uh, law. Uh, Well, after passage of that amendment, the Iowa Firearms Association shared a video of the board chair, John McLaughlin, uh, commending voters for passing the amendment. Here's a bit of what he had to say. I'm John McLaughlin, the chair of the Iowa Firearms Coalition, and congratulations, Iowa. You did it. You stood up against the media, the politicians that wanted to stop the Freedom Amendment. And as of right now, the Freedom Amendment has joined the Iowa Constitution. It has been a long haul, more than 12 years since this idea got going with the Iowa Firearms Coalition, and it's going to take a long time to thank everybody. But for now, we just want to thank the folks of Iowa who stood up, who stood strong against all the opposition that popped up over the last several weeks, millions of dollars spent against this. But again, you stood up to the face of adversity and have done something that is not just generational, but historical yourself, your family members, your kids, grandkids, great-grandkids will all benefit from having these fundamental rights, again, enshrined in the Iowa Constitution. We are no longer part of that small group of left-leaning states that does not recognize the Second Amendment. Juxtapose that opinion with Lee Schneider of Cedar Rapids. Uh, She survived gun violence twice 
three years apart during the 2017 Las Vegas mass shooting and then at the Cedar River Landing Bar. She spoke out against the gun amendment weeks before the midterms. Let's listen. We are already covered by the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution. We do not need additional measures protecting this. This measure is threatening any possibility of making our community safer. It could mean that someone who is intoxicated or in an establishment is allowed to carry and brandish their gun. That um, this is indeed taking um, out taking out of consideration the business wishes and taking freedom from business owners and patrons alike. They are calling this the Freedom Amendment, but I can tell you when you think you are going to die as you're being shot or when you are dealing with the effects of PTSD daily or other ramifications of gun violence, this is the furthest thing from feeling free. Gun violence survivor of Cedar Rapids, Lee Schneider. Let me start with you, Megan. Where are we with our gun rights and gun violence debate? Um, Is it evolving at all to a better place? Of course, we have two firmly entrenched sides here. Um, Very little common ground. I guess some common ground can be found. Are we likely to be stuck mostly along partisan lines? Yeah, so what I think is sort of interesting, too, especially with uh, Iowa's recent addition to the Constitution, is that we're starting to see like we have in many areas, a lot of geographic polarization uh, around gun control as states move to, um, you know, in in more liberal leading states, um, you know, sort of policy innovate and see if they can, to what degree they can push up against the Second Amendment uh, or the court's interpretation of the Second Amendment as it stands now um, to restrict access to guns. On the other hand, you have red states who are sort of going above and beyond the Second Amendment, um, because the Second Amendment does apply to state laws. Um, and so it was, you know, the, the amendments of the Constitution have gone through and are still going through a process called incorporation, uh, where they've slowly started applying these amendments to state laws as well. And the Second Amendment is included there. So, um, which is interesting, you know, I think, Jonathan, correct me if I'm, if I'm getting my timelines mixed up, but I think that if the timeline for our amendment was that 12 years ago, um, that might have actually been right as the Second Amendment was being incorporated. Um, but I think that we're going to see this sort of widening gap where your access to guns is highly dependent on the state you live in. And I think we'll probably start to see divergent outcomes from that as well. Mm-hmm. Before we have Jonathan comment, I just want to throw in the latest Gallup poll numbers on this. This is from um, October. 57% of U.S. adults now think laws covering the sale of firearms should be made more strict. Uh, that's a little bit down from 66%. Of course, when we have a high-profile mass shooting and we have more than one a day uh, in this in this country, defined as uh, the death or the injury of more, four or more people. Jonathan, your comment on where we are. Well, it's not a good spot. Um, you know, uh, America has by far the most guns per capita of any country in the world. Uh, number two, way, way behind us is, is Yemen, which is in the middle of a nasty uh, civil war. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, it, it's clearly I mean, gun violence is clearly linked to access to guns. I mean, unfortunately, you know, I don't, the political debate is not going anywhere. Um, you know, in part, it's just because of the intense polarization of the United States. So there is this middle ground view out there that supports most Americans overwhelmingly support some forms of gun control, you know, closing various uh, purchase ID loopholes. Um, and uh, red flag laws, uh, banning semi-automatic uh, long guns and that kind of thing. They're overwhelmingly favorable. Uh, but given the, you know, the 
trench warfare of our two-party system, it seems like any victory is going to, on either side is going to be a matter of inches. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to other political news within the last few days. Uh, we need to get used to hearing the name Jack Smith, the newly appointed special counsel to investigate former President Donald Trump. He's currently a war crimes, war crimes prosecutor at the International Criminal Court that's in The Hague in the Netherlands. Uh, last Friday, he was tapped to assume control over these uh, Justice Department investigations. Two prongs here to keep in mind. Uh, former President Trump's role in efforts to undo the results of the 2020 election. Also, the department's investigation into the possible mishandling of national defense secrets at uh, uh, Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence, his private club there. Uh, We remember more than 300 classified documents were covered months after he left the White House. Now, uh, Merrick Garland uh, said it was in the public interest to put a special counsel in charge of these cases rather than continuing with Justice Department officials uh, to avoid perceived conflict uh, as, uh, uh, of course, uh, President Trump, former President Trump, launching his 2024 presidential campaign. Um, Jonathan, let's start with you on this. Thoughts on the AG's move? Um, did he have other options? Is Was this the, the best option uh, in this sort of high-stakes terrain that he's navigating? I don't think so. I actually don't think this was a very good choice. Uh, It it seems to me that certainly on the documents case, the DOJ has more than enough uh, to charge former president. Uh, You know, uh, it's uh, the the information that's in the public domain, the public admissions that the former president has made in speeches and the like make it very clear that he took these classified documents and he did not want to return them. You know, if it's anyone other than Trump, that's an open and shut case. And by punting to the special counsel, uh, Attorney General Garland is is trying to insulate the Department of Justice from the appearance from the you know appearance of impropriety mm-hmm. and um, the appearance that perhaps uh, the sitting president is is involved in these investigations. But it's not going to appease uh, people. You know, this is not people who were in disinclined to trust the Justice Department's investigation beforehand are, I don't think, are going to be moved by the appointment of a special counsel. It's not like they're going to wake up and, and decide that Trump is not being persecuted because a war crimes prosecutor has taken over the case. So it seems to me that this is just a, a, a punt that isn't uh, really achieving anything except wasting time. Mm-hmm. Would, this, would there have been a better option? Um, I mean, we, Robert Mueller was a special counsel. Um, we know how that turned out. Um, um, there's an option of the what independent counsel is is that a, a step further towards independence that would have had in in some eyes more credibility i mean perhaps you know the, the obviously the, uh, john durham's uh, sort of high profile investigations and in, as a special counsel you know fell apart rather spectacularly in the courtroom and so i i'm sure that the justice department would like to avoid that kind of embarrassment again but it seems to me that uh you know, the DOJ has enough to, to move, at least on one of these cases. Um, and just sort of sitting around uh, is uh, not only not going to appease Trump supporters, but also going to make people who feel that these obvious crimes should be prosecuted just angrier. Mm-hmm. Megan, do you feel the same? Uh, Jonathan's uh, sort of darker view of, of this option that has been chosen by Merrick Garland. Yeah, I, I think I do. You know, in sort of reading... Um, about the background uh, and thinking, you know, I, I agree that this is obviously a move to sort of insulate the, the DOJ from uh, accusations that this is politics, that this is a political move, and that it's, um, you know, one politician trying to persecute another. Uh, 
a, a competitor. Um, but I, I completely agree that the polarization around this issue is such that there's no way to insulate the DOJ from those sort of accusations. I don't think there's any world in which uh, Trump facing any sort of charges isn't perceived as, you know, political persecution. Um, I don't think there's, there's any person or body that for at least some segment of the population that you could convince them um, that this was fair and just in any way. Mm-hmm. But, but there are differences when we compare it with special counsel Robert Mueller. Uh, we had a, a sitting president there, Jonathan, in that case, uh, Trump himself, president. Um, and uh, we had an attorney general, a different one, also had been appointed by Trump. So some differences there. Are they important, do you think? Uh, yes, I mean, they are important, of course. That, you know, Having the Justice Department investigate a sitting president is a tricky matter because, of course, uh, under the Constitution, the president is the head of the executive branch and therefore of the Department of Justice. And so they're, you know, they're essentially investigating their own boss. In this case, Donald Trump is a private citizen. He's, a, he's declared his political candidacy, but you know he's just like everyone else out there. He, he holds no official office. And so um, it seems to me that an ordinary person who had taken classified documents to his unsecured hotel residence uh, would have been prosecuted by now. Um, and, you know, Trump is not. So that's for me, that's discouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, related uh, news yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court clearing the way for a congressional committee to examine Uh, Trump's tax returns. This has been such a long legal battle uh, for years. Um, Justices, the the brief here means that the Treasury Department may quickly hand over six years of tax records from Trump and some of his companies uh, to the House Ways and Means Committees. Uh, Committee lawmakers have said they need these tax returns from his time in office, plus the year before his term, uh, to help evaluate effectiveness of the annual presidential audits. Now, Trump has argued that the Democratic lawmakers are just on a on a fishing expedition. Um, Megan, y- your thoughts on this? And of course, in the context of the, the former president, again, throwing his hat in the ring for 2024. Yeah, so I think this is um, a little bit interesting because I think it, it sort of highlights, you know, I... Um, Political scientists are by and large convinced that the courts are not sort of this like apolitical force in American politics that are neutral arbiters of the law, um, right, that they too are entangled in the political process. But, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about sort of where we often think of Trump appointees as being sort of loyal to Trump ideology. Um, and it's it's sort of an interesting test right now of uh, are they loyal to some of the ideology? Are they loyal to the person themselves? And I think this highlights that. No, not necessarily. Um, and I think it raises some questions of what the sort of conservative um, you know, wing of the party is going to, how they're going to approach the next presidential election in terms mm-hmm. of um, you know, sort of pushing back against uh, a Trump candidacy. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, your thoughts? To distinguish judges appointed by Trump from Trumpist judges, there are, of course, lots and lots of judges appointed by Trump across the federal judiciary. Most of them are like every other federal judge. Uh, but there are, you know, there's this this core of judges, including Eileen uh, Cannon in Texas, uh, that seem to be much more biased towards Trump, the person. Um, and uh, so I think that's an important distinction to draw. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's I mean, it's it's amazing that Trump was able to drag this out, you know, six years. The law on this is quite clear. It says that the Ways and Means Committee 
may request the tax returns of individual Americans in secret, and the Treasury Department is required, must supply these returns to the mm-hmm. committee. And so, uh, you know, once again, it's the wheels of justice grind slowly. Yeah. And then the the, the the strategy by the former president was to run off, run out the clock, given the the slow grinding wheels of, of justice here. Uh, before the break, uh, I'll just re- remind our listeners who may have just joined us, Jonathan Hasid with us of Iowa State University, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, our two political scientists. Uh, of course, Politics Wednesday, chewing over some of recent uh, recent political developments, uh, both uh, nationally and here in Iowa. Uh, before the break, we have about five minutes. Let's talk about uh, Twitter. <laughs> Elon Musk, he's owned it uh, Twitter less than a month. What a wild ride it's been for this social media platform that has uh, featured so prominently in recent election campaigns. Elon Musk uh, lifting the ban on tweets by former President Trump, uh, also reinstated the personal Twitter account of U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, now, we remember Twitter had suspended Trump's account after the U.S. Capitol riot January 6th, 2021, uh, citing that uh, incitement of violence. Uh, now, some 90 percent of Twitter's revenue comes from selling digital ads. And now we have reports that of Twitter's top 100 advertisers by total spending this year, about half have paused their ads. And uh, Jonathan, what does this mean uh, for really a part of the political, what has become an important part of political communication in our country? Yeah, I mean, Twitter is not a huge social platform, but it is a social platform for, for lack of a better word, the uh, social elite. So, you know, academics and journalists and uh, policymakers, lawmakers all tend to be on Twitter and all talking to each other. So it has this outsized importance relative to its relatively tiny user base. Um, and there's not really another space like it, at least not now, that can have bring, you know, what essentially influential and knowledgeable people together in a sort of a public conversation. And so if Twitter disappears, uh, it'll be interesting to see what takes its place. I, I do find it amusing that, you know, Elon Musk would have been much, much better off if he just uh, set hundred dollar bills on fire for warmth. Uh, you know, to heat his house <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, burning tens and tens of billions of dollars in this ridiculous acquisition, which ultimately it seems like he's going to destroy Twitter. I mean, I don't maybe I'm maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but I, the future of Twitter does not look bright. <laughs> Megan, your your view here. And of course, we have to put in this context also the rise of Truth Social. That's Donald Trump's own uh, platform. Yeah, so so I agree that it was sort of this common space, at least in the U.S., largely used by you know sort of the political social elite to have these conversations. I think the other thing that that's sort of concerning for some folks who are, um, you know, studying more comparative politics um, is the way that Twitter has been used in other places, right? Because it doesn't just go down in the U.S. It's, if it, Twitter goes down, it goes down everywhere. Um, the the role it's had in um, you know sort of mass movements uh, and the way that mass movements have used Twitter to coordinate their action um, and to really consolidate power. And, you know, I know we talk a lot about the online world is not real, but in some ways Twitter has facilitated power and uh, collective action in the real world and has enabled that by providing this platform of communication. And so I think there are you know, scholars looking at the way it's used elsewhere and sort of growing concerned um, that, 
you know, as a tool, it might disappear. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think the future is bright. I think that's a place for public discourse. You know, it's, I don't, we're not all collectively moving to the same places. Um, and we have this weird phenomenon where we're also getting sort of ideological silos uh, on platforms. I mean, those sort of existed in some ways already, but an entire platform that is siloed ideologically is uh, a little bit new too. Mm-hmm. Both of you sort of put it in sort of that that that's Trump uh, Twitter is elitist or is smaller. But I mean, we have to recognize, don't we, Jonathan, that what Donald Trump had more than eighty million followers on Twitter. That's not small at all. No, of course, that's that's a huge public reach. Uh, but you know, he's 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 unusual, right? There aren't that many other people who have follower accounts like that. I mean, maybe I don't know, Kanye maybe is up there. Uh, I think he's back on Twitter again. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's true, but, you know, that's an anomaly. Right. right. OK, so, so I wanted to ask, we've got a minute or so before the break, uh, where you think this is all headed with social media as we look to 2024 and beyond? And we know social media is a big part of, um, you know, keeping um, us in sort of news silos, in news bubbles. Megan, your thoughts? Do we get continued, the walls continue to be built between us and the individual realities, news realities continue to be fashioned and maintained? So I I think something that is kind of gradually being overturned is actually this idea of how siloed we are. That one of the things actually perhaps driving some of our polarization throughout in the world is the fact that when we get on social media, we see viewpoints that we otherwise might not have seen um, because we avoid those people in real life. I don't know. Um, And so I think there is increasingly evidence that we're not as siloed as we think, but if these spaces disappeared, we sort of like revert back to that. Um, I think one one last point is sort of on your point about Trump's importance on Twitter. I think that the other advantage the platform had is that, and social media has, is that it gives these elected officials, it gives journalists sort of a direct line to the people that doesn't rely on the media or some other sort of middleman transmitting it. Um, and so I think that was really powerful. I mean, Twitter is a middleman, but um, we're sort of realizing that. I think we always sort of phrase social media as a direct line to the people, but it still requires you to sort of have this platform. I guess in Thanksgiving gatherings around the country, we'll just find out how siloed we are <laughs> when family members <laughs> talk to each other. Jonathan, about 30 seconds before we go to break, your final comment on this point. Ah, uh, well, you know, I've only been I have only been on Twitter for like six months, but I just deleted my account recently. So I'm, <laughs> I'm preparing for for the disappearance of the platform. Um, you know, it's I don't know. I, I If there's one thing that comes out of this, I hope is destroyed is the idea of like the genius ultra billionaire who somehow is smarter and better than everybody else. That 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 would be nice to have that idea disappear. Well, <laughs> unless the phoenix rays, rises from the ashes. Yeah, we'll, fair we'll, enough. Fair we'll, enough. We'll, we'll see. Maybe there is a master plan. We just can't glimpse it yet. We'll uh, glimpse more of the insights from Jonathan Hasid and Megan Goldberg. And when we come back, there are two political scientists on this politics Wednesday edition of River to River. When we come back, I want to ask them about Iowa's Libertarian Party. You know, we had uh, the big headline that the GOP won big in a red wave here in Iowa, but the Libertarian Party did well. Uh, We'll explain just how and what implications that has when we return. Ben Kiefer here on River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion. 
the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. We're back with this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with our political scientists, Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. Join our conversation, one 780 9100 Megan and Jonathan, let's chew over a little bit more of uh, the midterm election results from a couple weeks ago. Of course, the big headline there, um, the national red wave that didn't happen. Uh, but in Iowa, uh, the red wave that did happen, Republicans sweeping all four congressional seats, unseating uh, Representative Axney in the 3rd District, uh, running away with the governor's race, uh, knocking off two longtime Democratic uh, statewide office holders, returning U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley to Congress for an eighth term. But there was another political party that had a good showing that hasn't received a lot of attention, the Libertarian Party of Iowa, uh, namely Rick Stewart, his running mate, Marco Battaglia. Uh, they earned Uh, 2.4% of the vote in the governor's race. They became the first libertarian gubernatorial ticket in Iowa to exceed that 2% threshold. That's what our state demands to qualify as an official political party. And it's the first time that's happened uh, since 2018 for the Libertarian Party. Megan, what does it mean for the Libertarian Party or any party to be recognized as an official political party in the state? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think it doesn't mean much, ultimately. Um, you know, it, it'll get in sort of a, you know, if you look at the voter registration form in Iowa, uh, it's actually very confusing. Um, there's a, a box with all the parties in it, and on one line it says sort of major parties, and the other one it's like affiliate, I don't remember the wording, like affiliations, and that's where the libertarians mm-hmm. have sort of been. So I, I assume this sort of means they get moved up to the next line. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, the the future of the party in terms of, you know, winning elected office, unless they can carve out some really local support, um, you know, and possibly get some folks on local government, county government. Um, you know, I don't think their prospects for winning office improve uh, all that much because at the end of the day, we still have all of these electoral institutions that sort of down the road all lead to two parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really hard for a third party to have any power when you have single member districts uh, winner-take-all, sort of first-past-the-post system, um, there's just not room for a third party uh, to be very competitive. Mm-hmm. The Iowa Secretary of State's office says there are about 16,000 registered libertarian voters in Iowa. Uh, Jonathan, your comment here about how they did well here and in their future. Yeah, you know, they did reasonably well, almost two and a half percent of the vote. Um, and, uh, you know, as we've heard, they've been granted major party status, which, yes, is is not a huge deal. Uh, they were granted this status, I guess, in, after 2016 and mm-hmm. lost it again in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it doesn't really seem to have when they had it, it doesn't really seem to have dramatically improved their fortunes in Iowa. Um, you know, it's interesting. These these uh, smaller parties in the American political system often play a spoiler role in the Libertarian Party is seen in general as taking away votes uh, from Republicans. Um, It's hard to know. We're not talking about a lot of votes here, but potentially in close election is enough to to swing something. Yeah, Jonathan, for those who don't know, uh, tell us in in big picture terms, what do libertarians generally stand for? Where are they on the political spectrum compared to the two uh, major parties? 
That's a great question. There actually seems to be a big war inside libertarianism right now over how Trumpy to be. Um, and so the National Libertarian Party has gone full in with supporting Donald Trump. Um, and other state level libertarian parties are much more wary of him. So in general, um, libertarians believe in minimal government. So they think that the government, you know, that government is best, which governs least. Uh, and so they essentially want government out of most aspects of life. But now that the National uh, Libertarian Party has sort of gotten on board the Trump train, they're, they're coming up with some positions that would seem to be incongruous with their political beliefs from earlier. And so this is causing a lot of tension within the party. Um, you know, and again, it's not, you know, like the Green Party on the left, this isn't, this isn't a huge group of people. But as we've seen, there are some elections where it can make a huge difference. The election, in, uh, presidential election in 2000, very famously, um, Ralph Nader, almost certainly cost uh, Al Gore, the state of Florida, and therefore the presidency. So they can matter in very close races. Mm -hmm. Let's move on. Uh, last week, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the first woman U.S. House of Representatives speaker, announced she'll give up her leadership role uh, a day after Republicans secured control of that chamber. Uh, such a long legacy there. Pelosi uh, serving as the top House Democrat for two decades. Uh, she was a speaker from 2007 to 2011, and then again from uh, 2019 until the present. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of her announcement in, uh, that she, last week that she won't continue as the Democratic leader. My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues, have bestowed upon me, speaker, leader, whip, there is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. Now, Pelosi's allies have quickly rallied around the representative from New York, Hakeem Jeffries, as her likely successor as the top House Democrat. Of course, they'll no longer be in the majority. Uh, meanwhile, majority Republicans preparing their House leadership as a counter to President Biden's legislative agenda. Let's focus, first of all, before we get into the lame duck and divided Congress, uh, Megan, talk about Nancy Pelosi's legacy, what she will most be be most remembered for yeah I, I sort of been thinking over that since you posed that question yesterday you know i think that um sort of in the second time around in, in her role as speaker we sort of lost sight in some ways of the fact that um you know she she was the first you know woman to take this role and i think that was um that's a really important legacy there's a lot of uh evidence that women in these high profile political roles um, really inspire sort of the next generation of women. Uh, you know, they see that and sort of it, it becomes clear that this is something that they too could achieve. And so, you know, I think that there are probably, you know, lots of young Democratic leaders that because they saw Nancy Pelosi in this role, um, you know, when they were teens or kids even, um, 
that we see run for office later. So I think that's a really important legacy. Um, but I also think that, you know, I don't know if this will be her legacy, but she was she was quite successful in her role as speaker, I think, in many ways, uh, in keeping the party together, uh, especially at a time when there was division. I mean, it's a, you know, the Democrats sort of paint themselves often as this big tent party, and that can pose a lot of challenges if you're the party leader. And I think she was quite successful in keeping the party together and cohesive in the House. Uh, so that they could get things done when she when they were in the majority. Jonathan, your comment on Nancy Pelosi's legacy? Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary legacy. You know, she, she governed often with a very narrow majority and was able to pass really significant legislation. Uh, of course, the fact that she's the first woman in the role is, is highly notable, you know, the most powerful woman in American political life uh, for a long time. Uh, but also, you know, the first Italian-American to make it uh, as far as she has, uh, which is interesting as well. Um, I think... You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to be like previous speakers of the House who've been hugely influential, the Cannons and the Rayburns, uh, you know, people even like Newt Gingrich or Tip O'Neill back in the day. I think she's going to get office buildings named after her and the like. And I think, um, you know, it's really to her credit how well she was able to hold this, as Megan said, this this big tent party together with under the narrowest of margins. It, it was really uh, quite a feat of, you know, political gamesmanship. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Democratic Party uh, torn between the centrists and the uh, left flank, but also similarly, uh, there are divisions within the uh, the Republican Party now uh, taking power, uh, control in the U.S. House. Uh, Jonathan, uh, you on this one first. How challenging it will be? Will it be for the likely House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the next Congress? Uh, what frac- fractions does he have to hold together? Factions does he have to hold together? He has an extremely challenging job. I, I, I do not see him being able to hold the caucus together. He's going to have about the same numbers that Nancy Pelosi did, so a margin of just you know four or five seats. But um, he's got the Freedom Caucus to deal with, which is a uh, almost 60-member, extremely conservative, far-right, uh, re- you know, very powerful part of the Republican uh, House uh, who are... Um, in general, I think more interested in striking back at political opponents and having investigations than doing, you know, day-to-day governance. And so, you know, there's going to be people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are going to push um, McCarthy to have lots of theatrical investigations. Uh, whether or not he's able to achieve anything as speaker, I think, is a really open question. It, it seems to me that he he was he's never been that strong at holding his caucus together uh, in the majority or the minority and now being speaker uh, with this very narrow uh, lead i think is going to be a real challenge for him mm-hmm. given given the nature of his caucus Megan you, your view on the challenges facing the likely new house speaker Kevin McCarthy Yeah i i echo everything uh, Jonathan just said i think another challenge sort of coming at him is that uh, there's quite a few new freshman uh, members of the Republican caucus. And I think that we saw in this previous session that especially if they're sort of uh, under the sort of Trumpier faction of the party, uh, you know, folks like Madison Cawthorn were a huge pain uh, for the Republican caucus. And we saw that with the sort of coordinated effort uh, to defeat Cawthorn in the in the primary. So, you know, I think that and, and again, it sort of goes to what Jonathan said, that they have a lot of interest and their experience in campaigning so far has really been to, uh, you know, sort of lob hits wherever they can at Democrats. Uh, and that's not really the norms of actually getting things done if you're in Congress. 
Um, and so I think we saw, again, Madison Cawthorn, you know, there were rumors that he dumped all of his resources for his office into like communications and marketing rather than building out like a policymaking team. Um, and so I think we have this interesting shift in what's sort of the, the new folks coming in, sort of what their priorities are, what we see them do, um, and this sort of lack of sort of figuring out the norms of how Congress works, how you sort of do this sort of internal gamesmanship. I think that's going to present a challenge as well. Republicans with that slim majority in the U.S. House, Democrats holding on to, well, we know at least a 50-50 split as they've had in the past two years, perhaps a 51-49, depending on this uh, runoff coming up in Georgia in um, the first week of of December. Um, Warnock and Walker running uh, with their runoff. Uh, Jonathan, I don't know if you've been looking at polls or Megan. uh, what, What is your sense here? Um, is Warnock um, um, favored here, Jonathan, do you believe? I think he is. I think he's slightly favored. You know, there haven't been that many polls that have come out in Georgia since the uh, you know November election, um, but there was one that was done recently that showed Warnock, I think, up by three or four points. That seems to me about right. Um, you know, Herschel Walker ran well behind uh, other Georgia officials like Governor Brian Kemp, uh, who's been reelected, or uh, uh, Raffensperger, the secretary of state, also handily reelected. And so Walker, even by other Republican voters, clearly is not seen as as strong a candidate as these other people uh, in in the Georgia political uh, realm. Uh, And so that's, you know, that's going to drag. And of course, special elections are even more so than regular elections. They're all about turnout. They're all about the ground game, you know, turning out your voters. Um, so far, Walker's only had a mixed bag on that. So I would, I, I think Warnock has got to be favored here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Megan, let me talk to you, talk to you, ask your opinion about um, the, well, this, these election results seen through the prism of election deniers, the pro-Trump MAGA election denier candidates, mostly defeated. Well, what does this mean to you, Megan, for the health of our democratic institutions? How big, uh, if you see it as a sigh of relief, how big should that sigh be? I think it's probably still small for me in many ways. Um, but, you know, one thing I think is, is interesting is it does show that, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of these folks are sort of new to politics, uh, new to campaigning. And I think it shows that that's, that's a rough, like, path to go down is to just sort of, like, become an elected official out of nowhere. Um, and that, you know, some sort of experience and sort of getting to know, um, you know, really that it's almost an industry in many ways, um, you know, getting to know that and getting that experience can be really important. Um, you know, I think there's still reason to be concerned about, uh, you know, looking at judicial appointments. Um, and again, I think the, the point to be most concerned about in terms of like election deniers is watching those really important offices that actually make elections happen, looking at the secretary of state, uh, your county auditors, um, and sort of how the these groups are recruiting and training poll workers. The people who actually make the election work are sort of the, the folks that I've been watching the most. And so there's good there's certainly good news on that front. But I don't think I'm like entirely relaxed about, uh, you know, the health of, of democracy. <laughs> so perhaps agreed it was uh, the results, a healthy shot in the arm for uh, democracy. Jonathan, you agree? Yeah, certainly. It was it was an encouraging election for those people like me who who believe in democracy uh, and think it's you know for all its flaws the 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 best form of government out there. Um, 
you know, some of the some of the losses of election deniers were awfully narrow in, in, in what were important positions. Uh, so, you know, in, in Wisconsin, uh, in Arizona, uh, we saw some really squeaker victories, which is I mean, it's good that it's good that people who are fundamentally against the democratic process didn't win office. But, the, you know, the fact that they're coming so close is uh, not a great sign. Mm-hmm. Megan, has this been um, good fodder for discussion in your classroom at Cornell? Oh, gosh. Well, I just got done teaching religion and politics. So we have had a lot of discussion, really prepping them for Thanksgiving uh, to go talk to their families. Um, yeah, I think there's been a lot of discussion around that and also really around sort of the, the other thread that we've been picking at is this, you know, sort of trend of Christian nationalism and um you know, how that, how that sort of squares with democracy and can it square with democracy, uh, you know, in addition to thinking about what do you have when people just actively are sort of out there not supporting uh, democratic processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan, with your expertise in, in, in China, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, some recent developments there. Last week we had the our president meeting the Chinese leader, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, holding their first uh, in-person talks. I think they've talked many times by phone or video, but the first in-person talks since 2017, and this came on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Indonesia. Uh, what are your takeaways from this meeting? It was encouraging. Uh, both sides had came out of it with more moderate rhetoric than they'd gone into it before. Uh, the Chinese side in particular seemed to have walked back a lot of its stridency that they'd been pushing before. And so that's helpful. You know, it's um, obviously there's, you know, at some point in the future, there, there remains this potential flashpoint, this potential war spot uh, over Taiwan. And it's nice to see both sides kind of dial the rhetoric back a little bit. So that was that was really important. Um, China, though, is a mess at the moment. Uh, you know, Xi Jinping has got a lot to worry about at home. Uh, the, the China's zero COVID policy is breaking down completely. Um, and in the meantime, the sort of lower levels of government don't know what to do and seem totally paralyzed as the Chinese economy sort of collapses due to these perpetual lockdowns. So Xi Jinping's got a lot on his plate. Yeah, and you've seen the videos. I have, too. Really astounding because not a lot, uh, well, is allowed to escape from China as far as news reports, especially on these violent protests against the zero COVID policy, Jonathan. Yes, especially in this, the Foxconn factory, which, of course, is Apple's major supplier. And so for those who are looking for their you know new iPhones for Christmas, uh, this is where they're getting made. The whole factory went on strike. Uh, apparently, people escaped over the walls. So factories in China are not just like single buildings. They're enormous complexes with dorms and kitchens and cafeterias. They're kind of like self-contained uh, little statelets. Um, and the Foxconn factories are enormous. I mean, there's something like 100,000 people working there. And so uh, the really the scale of the unrest was enormous in China. And Foxconn is apparently trying to replace all of these workers. But even in China, it's you know harder than you would expect to find just 100,000 workers you know, sitting around. It's not that easy. Yeah. A passing of note, uh, a name you most of us will not recognize, Jonathan, I suspect you do, Bao Tong. Uh, this was the highest-ranking Chinese official imprisoned over those pro-democracy protests in Tiananmen Square back in 1989 that ended in carnage. Uh, He became a critic of the Communist Party. He died on November 9th in Beijing. It makes me want to ask you, Jonathan, reflect on 
any pro-democracy notions that remain in China these days? Is, 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 is there, are there any uh, that would have a realistic possibility of change? No, no, the, the, they're dead. Um, Xi Jinping has the, the spaces of civil debate that existed before he came into office. I, I wrote my first book on uh, China's journalists who were pushing back before Xi Jinping came into power, who were making space for aggressive reporting, who were channeling public discontent in really interesting ways. They've all been fired. They're, they're in prison. They're in exile. Xi Jinping has completely shut down all social discussion. Uh, and so, you know, in that sense, uh, the China had this kind of liberalizing moment that is now very much over. And I think yeah, Bao Tong's death is just really the exclamation mark on this. It's true that technically he was the highest ranking official punished uh, by the party for uh, dereliction, I guess, in 1989. But his boss, who was the, in theory, the most powerful man in China, Zhao Ziyang, was, was, was disappeared, was put under house arrest. So was never charged with anything, but had the same kind of punishment. So it's, you know, it wasn't, this guy wasn't by himself. His uh, the the most powerful person in China was was removed and stuck under house arrest for the rest of his life because of the supporting the protests in 1989. So it's that moment is over. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, we've run out of time. I want to thank you both, uh, Jonathan Hasid, associate professor of political science at Iowa State University in Ames. Jonathan, thank you. Thanks, Ben. And Megan Goldberg, thank you for uh, your insights as well, Assistant Professor of American Politics at Cornell College in Mount Vernon. Take care, both of you. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving as well to you and all of our listeners. Thanks, Ben. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. For the rest of the week uh, on uh, this time slot, we'll have some special Thanksgiving programming. I'll be back next Monday, though, with an hour looking back. This is something for political junkies. The history of conspiracy theories, mostly in our politics. I'll have two presidential historians uh, with us live, uh, Tim Walsh and Tim Naftali. Uh, We'll talk about uh, such historical conspiracy theories that have to do with the Salem witch trials, but also the assassination of JFK, the Red Scare in the 20th century. That on Monday's program. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Today's River to River, produced by Danny Gear with help from Natalie Dunlop. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>